You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. By special request, I have slightly altered the manner in which I propose to deal with this subject this evening. We will not only have a look at the subject of Israel's return as a sure sign of Christ's coming, but I also want to present to you the key that will open up for you the wonderful Word of God. The Bible is not an easy book to understand. In fact, it is a most difficult book. And to understand it aright, you need to be in possession of the key that will unlock its mysteries. And tonight I propose to set before you the key to the understanding of the Bible. When we pick this book up in our hands, we pick up no ordinary book. We look at the spine of that book and we read two words, Holy Bible. The word holy means separate. And the word Bible means book. And when we pick this book up in our hands, we're picking up a book that is separate and distinct from any other book that we can take in our hands. This is the separate book. It is God's book. And therefore it is called the Holy Bible or the Holy Book. But when we have a look at it a little closer, we find that this book is more than a book, more than a single volume. In fact, it is a library of books. And as we look at the contents page of the Bible, we find that it is a library of 66 books. And as we look even closer at this wonderful book, we find that something like 1,500 years separated the writing of the book of Genesis from the writing of the book of Revelation. 1,500 years separated the writing of the first part of the Bible from the writing of the last part of the Bible. And again, as we pursue our studies even further, we find that various types of men were used to record this book. We find that kings, statesmen, priests, laymen, shepherds, fishermen, scholars, all played a part in the writing of the Bible. One man wrote from Arabia. Another man wrote from Babylon. A third man wrote in Jerusalem. A fourth man wrote in Greece. A fifth man wrote in Rome. And yet despite the great length of time, between the writing of the first book of the Bible and the last, despite the vast difference in the different classes of people that were used to record this book, and despite the fact that they had no personal contact one with another, there is a wonderful agreement in this book that we have before us that demonstrates that the real author of it is the God in heaven. There's a wonderful agreement in the Bible that demonstrates that the hand that dictated it is divine. But as I said before in opening this address, it is not an easy book to understand. And we need to have the key that will unlock the mysteries of that book for us. Why should God have written such a book as this? A book that is difficult to understand. It is because God requires us to think upon his purpose. It is because God has set before us salvation. 
and salvation is worth seeking. And God requires men and women who are prepared to give their time and their thought to the things of God. Men and women who are prepared to be formed by the word of God and therefore are prepared to think upon these things. But as we look closely at the pages of God's word, we find that the key to the understanding of the Bible can be expressed simply. The key that will unlock any part of the word of God can be, un, uh, can be expressed very simply. I want to endeavour to do that this evening. What I propose to do is this. I propose to direct your attention to certain passages of Scripture. I will make certain comments upon those passages of Scripture. And if you believe that the comments that I make upon those passages of Scripture are not fair comment, well, I invite you to use the open session at the end of this address to challenge me upon those points. And you're going to find tonight, friends, that some of the matters that I present before you are challenging because God's Word is challenging. This book is challenging. And the revelation of God is challenging. And as we look into the pages of God's Word, we will find that which will challenge our present conception of the purpose of God. To that end, I invite you to open your Bibles at the first chapter of the book of Romans and read the 16th verse of that chapter. And there the Apostle Paul writes as follows. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, he said, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And as we analyse that statement of the Apostle Paul, we find that it states three distinct things. First of all, that there is such a thing as the gospel of Christ. Secondly, that it is the power of God unto salvation. And thirdly, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. But what if a person does not believe it? What if a person is in ignorance of it? Well, it is then not the power of God unto salvation to such. It is the power of God unto salvation only unto those that believe this gospel. And therefore it is incumbent upon us to search the pages of God's word that we might ascertain what that gospel comprises. In the same book, in the 15th chapter of Romans and at verse 9, the Apostle Paul again states that Jesus Christ was the minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. We cannot impress that scripture upon you too much. It teaches that Jesus Christ came to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. That was accomplished in the death of Jesus Christ. It was a confirmation of promises made unto the fathers. And the Lord Jesus Christ, when he appeared 1900 years ago, his sacrifice confirmed those promises that God had made from the very beginning. So we have the Apostle Paul telling us that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. And here we learn that that gospel is comprised in certain promises that Almighty God made unto the fathers of Israel. And what are those promises? What is the gospel? 
What is the key that will unlock this wonderful book? The gospel can be expressed in seven words. And those seven words are contained in the third chapter of Galatians and of verse 8, the chapter that we read this evening. And these seven words, friends, comprise the whole message of God's word. In the third chapter of Galatians and of verse 8, we learn that God preached the gospel unto Abraham in these words, In thee shall all nations be blessed. And those seven words comprise the gospel message as it was proclaimed unto Abraham. More than that, those seven words comprise the fundamental message of God's word. When we understand the meaning of those seven words, we understand the key that will unlock the Bible for us. When we understand the significance of those seven words, we understand the purpose of God with us. And the purpose of God is expressed in those words, in thee shall all nations be blessed. You know, friends, this third chapter of Galatians is a very, very important chapter of God's word. It is a chapter whereby we are enabled to test truth from error. It is like a crucible in which we can determine the true from the false. We are able by this third chapter of Galatians to test many doctrines that are current today with the truth of God's word. Let me give you an illustration of that. We are taught in the world today that God is not one, but God is three. What says our crucible? In the 20th verse of that third chapter of Galatians, we are told that God is one. We are told by some people that the Old Testament is not important. What says the crucible? It teaches that the gospel was teached unto Abraham and the life of Abraham is contained in the Old Testament. Some people tell us that Jesus Christ pre-existed. But what says the crucible? In verse 16 we read, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not the seeds as of many, but as of one, to thy seed which is Christ. And here in this verse, Jesus Christ is said to be the seed of Abraham. And if Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham, I submit that Jesus Christ could not have existed before the birth of Abraham. Otherwise, Jesus Christ is not the seed of Abraham. Some teach that baptism does not matter. So long as a person's heart is right with God, that is all that matters. But what saith the crucible? In verse 26 we read, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. He is speaking to certain believers in Galatia. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Some say that it is absolutely imperative that we obey the law of Moses. What saith the crucible? We read that uh, in verse 19, Why serve the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Why then, he says, serve the law? Some say that heaven is the reward of the righteous and not upon the earth. But in the third chapter, in the eighth verse of the third chapter of Galatians, we read that in the Abraham 
shall all nations be blessed. The blessing of God is with Abraham upon this earth. And so in this wonderful chapter, which I suggest you can study in the privacy of your homes, you have, as it were, a crucible that can determine the false from the true. Now let us concentrate upon the gospel message. It is contained in that eighth verse, and it is expressed in seven words. In thee shall all nations be blessed. And as I said before, those seven words comprise the gospel message. And they direct attention to the earth as the arena of the purpose of God. In thee shall all nations be blessed. And I submit, friends, that it doesn't matter to what part of the word of God we turn. There we have the same consistent message taught. And that same consistent message directs our attention to a time when upon this earth the kingdom of God shall be established. I know that this is not generally believed. I know that some teach that this earth is to be burnt up. I know that some teach that heaven is the reward of the righteous. But I submit to you that it doesn't matter to what part of the Bible we turn. The same consistent message is taught that this earth is to be the arena of God's purpose. And I'm going to take you briefly now right through the Bible to show that. In the 14th chapter of Numbers and at verse 21 we have this statement that the, as truly as I live the whole earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. As truly as I live the whole earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Is that the case today? Do you look over a world today in which there is seen the glory of the Lord? Is the glory of the Lord seen in the cities of mankind today? Is the glory of the Lord manifested in the conditions that we see upon this earth? In all the trouble and the fear and the violence that fills this earth today? Is the glory of the Lord revealed in the fact that communism is swamping nations today as never before in history? That more men today are turning their backs upon God's word than ever before? Does that reveal the glory of the Lord? That God's purpose is that ultimately the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And therefore with the vision of God's word in mind we can look to a time when the conditions of things upon this earth shall be changed and God's purpose in creation will be fulfilled. Let me direct your attention to another part of the word. We turn halfway through the Bible to the 72nd Psalm. And there in the 72nd Psalm, we again have similar words spoken to us of the purpose of God with this earth to be revealed in the future. In Psalm 72 and at verse 17, we read that his name, the name of the great King, the Lord Jesus Christ, his name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him all nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God of the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. All nations shall call him blessed. So that here the psalmist looks to the time when conditions upon this earth shall be changed, and instead of a state of things that he saw and we saw, he said he saw all nations blessed in this wondrous king to whom he makes reference in this 72nd Psalm. Turn to the second chapter of Daniel and there in verse 44 we have again expressed the purpose of God. 
We are told that the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all nations, and it shall stand forever. And you can analyze that verse as you like, friends. It can mean one thing only, that the purpose of God is to establish upon this earth a kingdom. The God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all other kingdoms, but it shall stand forever. And later on in that same book, Daniel shows that this kingdom is to be established upon the earth. For in the seventh chapter of Daniel, and at verse 27, the prophet says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. And for that kingdom to be set up, Jesus Christ must return to this earth. He must return to this earth in order that he might bring to consummation the glorious purpose of God, that under his righteous rule, mankind will reflect to the glory of the Father. And the kingdom shall be set up in its greatness and be given to the saints of the Most High. In the 14th chapter of Zechariah and of verse 9, we have stated that the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In the 11th chapter of Revelation and of verse 15, we are told the kingdoms of this world are to become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of this world, nations like Great Britain, America, Russia, China, Europe, are to become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And in the 61st chapter of Isaiah, and at verse 11, we have perhaps one of the most beautiful expressions in all the pages of God's word. For there the prophet says, for as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. As the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth. Do you know how that is accomplished? Do you know how the earth bringeth forth her bud? Or the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth? Do not we see in these things the power of Almighty God silently, invisibly at work? So God says, as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations, not in heaven, notice, but upon the earth. And before all the nations, before nations like communist Russia and China, before materialistic nations like America, the time is coming when righteousness and praise to Almighty God shall shine forth. And all these scriptures, and I could quote another hundred scriptures, all these scriptures speak of the great blessing that is to come from the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are expressive of the gospel message. And that word gospel 
is an interesting word. It means the good news or the glad tidings. And God has good news and he has glad tidings to express unto us. The good news has relation to the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment on this earth of his kingdom. Now I want you to follow me, friends, as I try to enlarge upon this gospel message. I direct your attention again to that third chapter of Galatians of verse 8. And we read there that God preached the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. And in order to understand that gospel message, we have to go back to the biography of Abraham. It's contained in the early chapters of Genesis. It is contained in Genesis chapters 20 to about chapter 20, uh, chapters 12 to about chapter 24. And I do earnestly suggest, friends, that if you want to pay yourself the compliment of trying to understand the word of God, that you very carefully read those chapters in Genesis. From Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 24. And note carefully the promises that God made unto faith through Abraham. Because in those chapters you have the foundation of the whole purpose of God. And I want to try and express that to you. Abraham is set before us in the Bible as typical of any person who will follow Jesus Christ. We see him in three stages. We see him first of all as an idolater in the city called Ur of Chaldees. He hears the call of God. He separates himself. His mind becomes enlightened to the things of God. He is told by Almighty God to do a certain thing. And Abraham was obedient to the vision that was given unto him. So that we see Abraham, first of all, as an idolater. We see him next as a man that is enlightened. And we see him finally as a man who is walking in the light. We read in the Bible how that God caused his voice to sound in the ears of Abraham calling upon him to separate himself from the way of life in Ur of the Chaldees. Get thee out, he was told. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. We learn how he left Ur of the Chaldees. And in company with his father Terah, in company with his brother Nahor and with his nephew Lot, he left Ur of the Chaldees and he came to the city of Haran. And in this journey of, the, of, of Abraham, we have, as it were, a parable of the purpose of God. The word Haran means enlightened. And Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees and he travelled about 600 miles to the city of Haran, the city that means enlightened. And there for a moment the little company remained. They stopped there until Terah, the father of Abraham, died. They stopped there until the voice of God came again to Abraham and said unto him, Get thee out, Abraham. And in the Hebrew it is, Go for thyself, Abraham. Get thee out from thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto the land that I will show thee. And Abraham left. He left with Lot, his nephew. He left leaving behind him Haran, in the city of Haran. 
And in all this we have, as I said before, a parable of the purpose of God. We have four men that left Ur of the Chaldees. Terah, Haran, Lot and Abram. They all heard the gospel message. Terah died without any doing anything about it. Haran refused to move in the matter. Abraham and Lot alone came into the land that God spake to them about. And then we learn, as we will, as we follow the biography of this man, we learn how even Lot turned ultimately aside. And in that, friends, we have a parable of the world that hearkens to the voice of Jesus Christ. Christ's voice sounds out today to the whole world. But many like Kira, though they might hear the voice, they prefer to do nothing about it. Many are like Nahor, so slow that they will not act upon the voice of Almighty God. Some are like Abraham, that will move in accordance with what God requires of them. Others are like Lot, who having commenced well, soon drift away once again. And so Abram came down into the land that God had spoken to him about. And as soon as he passed over the Euphrates and come down through the land, down over the Jordan and into the promised land, for Israel was the promised land, or Palestine, he was known as Abram the Hebrew. The word Hebrew is very significant. It means a crosser over. And now Abraham is known as Abram the Hebrew, the man who has crossed over, the man who has crossed over into doing the things of God. He was Abram the Hebrew. And God gave unto him great and precious promises. Now I want you to underline these points that I'm going to bring out to you now. Those promises are contained in the 12th chapter of Genesis, verses 1 to 3. I want you to follow me with those promises. The Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. They are the words that Paul quotes in the third of Galatians, verse 8. Now there are four promises made unto Abraham. Number one, I will make of thee a great nation. Number two, I will bless thee, make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Number three, I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. Number four, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. The first promise is a national promise. I will make of thee a great nation. The second promise is a personal promise. You yourself, Abraham, will be great. The third promise extends that principle. They that bless thee, I will bless. And the fourth promise is an international promise. All families of the earth shall be blessed. Now God made those promises to Abraham. But none of those promises, friends, have ever yet been fulfilled. Not one of those four promises have ever yet been fulfilled. The Jewish people came from Abraham, but the Jewish people have never been a great nation. Abraham was told, you will be blessed, your name will be great. But Abraham's name is not great on the earth today. Very few people know anything concerning the name of Abraham. God said, I will bless them that bless thee. But people who bless Abraham today are not considered as being greatly blessed. 
And finally, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And we know as we look around the world today that the world is not blessed. None of those four promises have yet been fulfilled. And yet God solemnly promised them unto Abraham. And later on he confirmed that promise with an oath. God told Abraham that those promises would be fulfilled and he confirmed it by an oath. And those four promises are the foundation of the whole teaching of the Bible. Those four promises comprise the key that will unlock any part of the word of God. Those four promises are the foundation of the prophetic scriptures. They are the foundation of the personal appeal that the scriptures make to every individual. They are the foundation of the hope that God sets before any person that would come unto him. And if you understand those four promises, friends, you understand a key that will unlock any part of the word of God. I do not care if it's the book of Revelation or the book of Genesis. I do not care how difficult or how complex the book might be. The foundation message of the 66 books of the Bible comprises those four promises to Abraham. And I can show you those promises made to Abraham in any of the 66 books of the Bible. You can tear the whole of the New Testament out. At least you can tear the whole book of Genesis out. And I'll show you those four promises in the rest of the Old Testament. You can rip all the prophecies of God's word out. I'll show you those four promises in the gospel messages. You can tear out the gospel messages. You'll find them in the epistles of Paul. You can rip out every book of the Bible and leave only the book of Revelation. I'll still show you those four promises. In other words, friends, the things that I want to show you tonight are not based upon one or two isolated passages. But I undertake to show you them in any part of the word of God you care to designate. Those promises are there. They are the foundation message of the purpose of God. And I want to take that a little further. Because of those promises in the 12th chapter of Genesis, verses 1 to 3, your way of life today is being altered. Because of those promises in Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3, world events are developing as they are. Now I want to show you why. Take the first promise. I will make of thee, Abraham, a great nation. The Jewish people came from Abraham except for a small period of time in the days of Solomon and David, they have never been a great nation. They are not a great nation today. They crucified their Messiah. They turned their backs upon Almighty God. They blaspheme his name. They reject the name of Jesus Christ. The history of Israel as recorded in the Bible is a history of rebellion against Almighty God. They have never been a great nation. But God told Abraham, I will make of thee a great nation. And whether the Jews wanted or not, whether the Gentiles wanted or not, because God made a solemn promise to Abraham, one day Israel will be a great nation. And because of that promise made to Abraham, you can go to any part of the world today and you will find Jewish people. Because of that promise made to Abraham, God has preserved the Jewish people down to our own time. Because of that promise made to Abraham, the Jewish people are returning to their homeland today. Because of that promise made to Abraham, the whole world is in a state of turmoil today. Because the key to the world situation today is the Middle East. 
And why is the Middle East in a state of turmoil? Because the Jews are coming back to that land. And why are the Jews returning back to that land? Because God made a promise to Abraham. And they are the facts of the case. The more you look into the scriptures of truth, you find that it's so. In the 36th chapter of Ezekiel, we find how the prophet Ezekiel speaks concerning this matter and the return of the Jews to Palestine. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet declares, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. What is he speaking about? In verse 24, I will take you from among the heather you out of all countries, bring you into your own land. That's what God says concerning Israel. I will take you from among the heathen, gather you out of all countries, bring you into your own land. What are you seeing happening today? Israel is a nation once more in the earth. The Jews are flocking back to the Middle East. Over two million of them have returned. They have come from over 70 different countries. They have come speaking a score of different dialects. And Hebrew has united those people as they have flocked in from all parts of the earth. And God declared 2,500 years ago, God said, I will take you from among the heathen, gather you out of the countries, bring you into your own land. And we're seeing the fulfilment of that today. And notice what God says in verse 22. I do not this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the nations, whither ye went. I don't do this for your sakes, Israel. You profane my holy name wherever you went. I do it for my holy name's sake. You might make a promise to me. In the goodness of your heart, you might make an unconditional promise to me. You might say to me, I am going to give you such and such. And then you might find out later that I am not worthy of that gift. But your promise has been unconditional. You have made that promise to me. You have found out subsequently that I am not worthy of that gift. But you being a person of your word cannot get out of your promise. You're going to give that promise not because I am worthy of it but because you honour your word. Because you are known as a man or a woman of your word and therefore you carry out that promise. And that's what God is going to do as far as the Jewish people are concerned. And the fact that the Jews are returning to the land of Palestine today is a testimony that we can put unqualified confidence in anything that God says. It is a testimony that whatever God says in the word, he will do. If ever there was a people whom we say God would be justified, if he rejected them, it would be the Jewish people. If ever there was a people whom we would say God was justified, if he blotted the name of Jew out of existence, we would say it's the Jewish people. Why then does God preserve them? Because for my holy name's sake, because I made a promise to Abraham, and that promise to Abraham will be fulfilled. And what is the significance of this? Look at the next chapter of Ezekiel. At the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, verses 21 and 22. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king unto them all. Now I want you to analyse that verse, because that verse comprises the key to world situation today. 
And I want you to see the three great stages presented in that verse. I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And we're seeing that a token fulfillment of that today. We're seeing the Jews being brought back to their land from all parts of the world. That is stage number one. Stage number two is in verse 22. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And since May 1948, the name Israel is a geographical term in the earth. Israel is again a nation after 1900 years of dispersion. The second stage in that prophecy has had token fulfilment. And the third stage, and one king shall be king unto them all. And who do you think the king is, friends? You can go to the Middle East today as I have. You can go to the city of Jerusalem. You will find that parliament meets in Jerusalem. You will find that there is a head of the state, but there is no king in Israel. And there never will be a king in Israel until he whom they crucified 1900 years ago, until he whom they took out to the hill of Calvary and they cried, crucify him, crucify him. And over the cross there was put the superscription, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, until he returns to take up his rightful position and reign. For he was the man born to be king. He is the king of Israel. And the time is coming when the Lord Jesus Christ shall return to put down that revolt against his authority 1900 years ago to take up his rightful position and reign. So that we read here, and one king shall be king unto them all. Notice what is said in the next chapter of Ezekiel, the 38th chapter of Ezekiel. This chapter that we dealt with last Sunday evening when we showed that it predicts a great Russian invasion of the Middle East. Notice how it describes the people of Israel. We read in verse 11 that thou, Russia, shall say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages, I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil, to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon desolate places now inhabited upon the people gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods and later on against my people of Israel. And as I said last Sunday evening, until May 1948, that prophecy could not be fulfilled because there was no nation of Israel. But notice how it is described. Take those verses point by point if you like. Verse 11 the land of unwalled villages. In the Bible, unwalled villages defines a rural settlement. And go to the Middle East and you see that the foundation of life in the Middle East today, in Israel today, is the rural settlements, the kibbutzim. They are the rural settlements, the unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest. And after 1900 years of dispersion and wandering through the nations, Israel is at last at rest. I will go to them that dwell safely, or as the margin gives it, confidently. And if ever there was a nation that is confident in the earth, it is the nation of Israel. Israel is today as a nation reborn. I have visited the country on two occasions. Seven years ago I found the nation of Israel fearful and afraid. When I visited it a few months ago, I found that same nation confident and assured. Seven years ago, the nation was severely rationed. 
They received a quarter of a pound of meat every two months. Today, Israel is almost economically self-sufficient. Seven years ago, there were shortages everywhere. A shortage of soap, a shortage of food, a shortage of houses, shortages everywhere. Today in Israel, you find shops bursting with goods. You find new buildings growing up everywhere. You find that rationing has completely ceased. Seven years ago, there were many places that were arid and empty that when I went to Israel a few months ago, I found completely settled. So that today, land is an urgent need in Israel. And as we look at the nation of Israel today, we see a modern miracle. Israel is one of the world's oldest nations and yet one of the world's youngest nations. It is the only country to have been reborn out of antiquity after a struggle as dramatic as any of those recorded in the Old Testament records. Its citizens are the only people to have been dispersed into all parts of the earth and regathered again as a nation. Its language is the only language to have been resurrected from a dead language to a vital modern living tongue. It's not, it is one of the world's smallest nations. A strip of land so narrow that its name must be printed outside its own borders on most maps. And yet it dominates world thought right out of proportion to its size. Its population is a world in microcosm because the average Israeli comes from any of 72 different countries. And God in his wonderful word told us 2,500 years ago that this would be the miracle of the latter days that Russia would turn its hand upon desolate places now inhabited, upon a people gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. And the return of the Jews to Palestine is the great sign that Christ's coming is near at hand. In the 102nd Psalm, the psalmist speaks of this great sign. In verse 13, the psalmist says, Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favour her, yea, the set time has come. And notice those words, they're not my words, they're the words of Scripture. The set time to favour Zion. It was not a matter of chance or caprice that the Jews returned to their land when they did. It was the set time in the economy of God. And so in uh, verse uh, 16 of that same psalm we read, when the Lord shall build up Zion, and I want you to understand, friends, that it is not Jewish brains or Jewish muscles or Jewish ingenuity that is building up Israel today. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. And at verse 18 we read, this shall be written for a generation to come. Not that generation, a generation to come. And we are the generation. And a people that shall be created shall praise the Lord. And we can turn over to the New Testament scriptures and we find the same message. For in the 11th chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul says in verse 12, If the fall of Israel be the riches of the world, inasmuch as the gospel of salvation was preached unto the Gentiles, if the fall of Israel be the riches of the world, how much more their fullness? And in verse 15 he says, If the casting away of Israel be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be? 
but life from the dead, the sign of the resurrection. And so he goes on in that same chapter to show in verse 25 that that, uh, blindness in part hath happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And he says, so all Israel shall be saved, that the deliverer shall come out of Zion and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And so the Apostle Paul spake of the regathering of Israel, the manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he would turn away ungodliness from Israel. And when Jesus Christ rules, and when Israel has been humbled, and when Israel has been brought under the rod, and when Israel has been forced to accept their king, and when Jesus Christ assumes his rightful position as king of the Jews, then Israel will become a great nation. Their blindness in heart will be taken away. Their stubbornness will be removed. They will be disciplined. And they will accept Jesus Christ. And so, the fulfilment of the promise made to Abraham will be accomplished. They shall be, as Abraham was told, a great nation. Now let us take the next promise. Abraham was also told in that 12th chapter of Genesis that I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. Here is a personal promise. I will make of thee a great nation. Now a personal promise. I will bless thee, make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Is that true today? Is Abraham's name great in all the earth? Is he a blessing in all the earth? We know that that is not the case. You speak to people concerning Abraham and they do not know who he is. They know nothing of the man. He is not honoured in all the earth. If I was to say to my neighbour, I know Abraham, I know of Abraham and I revere him, that would not not concern my neighbour in the slightest. But the time is going to come when everyone will be honoured to say that I know Abraham. And Jesus Christ tells us that. In the 13th chapter of Luke and at verse 28, he speaks of the glory of Abraham in the age to come. He shows how the people shall come from all parts of the earth there to see Abraham. He says, ye shall see, ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. He spake those words to the Jewish people. They would see Abraham in the kingdom of God. When Abraham is in the kingdom of God and people are coming from all parts of the earth and they see him as one of the honoured assistance of the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom that he shall set up then Abraham's name will be great in all the earth and he indeed shall be a blessing and God went on to say that I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and in order to understand that I want to direct your attention to another incident that happened in the life of Abraham it's recorded in the 13th chapter of Genesis With his nephew Lot, he entered into the land that God had directed him to, the land of Palestine. And for a while, all was well. But gradually they prospered under the mercy of God. And as they prospered, a temptation came before them. They found it difficult to uh, graze their herds. The land was so narrow, they could not find sufficient grazing land. And so there developed a strife between the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot. 
And Abraham said, let us not strive about this matter. You select what land you want and I will take what remains. They were on a certain position. They were in a certain position in the land of Israel at that time. We are told that they were between Bethel and Ai in the heights of Palestine. And Lot, as Abraham spake to him, looked down past Ai and he saw in the plains beneath the cities of the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah. He saw how they were well fed with the waters of the river Jordan. He saw how they looked so prosperous in the distance. He saw how the the fields were green and prosperous. And he selected that land. He selected Sodom and Gomorrah. And he left to Abraham the heights of Bethel. And after he had left, the angel came to Abraham and he spoke to him again. And he said to Abraham in verse 14 of the 13th chapter of Genesis, Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward, southward, eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. Now I want to impress this on you friends. This is fundamental in the scriptures. Lift up your eyes Abraham and look northward, southward, eastward and westward. All the land that thou seest to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it for I will give it unto thee. There's no doubt about the land. He was told to look north, south, east and west. All the land that he saw he was to have forever. He was told to walk upon the land in the length of it, in the breadth of it because God would give it unto him. There's no doubt about the land. It was the land of Palestine. And yet, friends, do you know by a strange perversity of human nature mankind persists in looking everywhere but where God told Abraham to look. Abraham was told to look north, south, east and west not upwards. And yet, Mankind ever since has looked upwards and not to that which God has promised him. And God said to Abraham, I will give you this land and to your seed forever, not for 70 years, but forever. And Abraham never received that land. I presented that thought to a friend once and he challenged me upon it. He said all that that promise means is that Abraham would have that land for the duration of his life upon this earth and he possessed it for that period of time. I told him that that was not a fact, that Abraham had not inherited that land. He assured me that Abraham had. And I said to him, well, what a pity it is that you did not live 1,900 years ago. He said, why is that? And I said, if you had lived 1,900 years ago and could have explained what you're explaining to me, you would have been able to prevent a great injustice being committed. He said, I do not understand you. Well, I said, Stephen was the first Christian martyr. He was put to death for the things he believed. He said, yes, that is right. Well, I said, Stephen was put to death because he believed that Abraham did not inherit that land. And the evidence for that is found in the seventh chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. And in Acts chapter 7, we read the defense of Stephen. Stephen, when he was brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin, presented his defense. And you know, friends, death faced Stephen at that time. And when a person is on trial for life, he does not waste his time in idle talk. He gets down to the very fundamentals of the matter. And death uh, death faced Stephen at that time. 
And when Stephen was brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin to give a defense on the things that he believed, he directed their attention to the promises made to Abraham. He said, The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from thence when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye Jews now dwell. No doubt about the land. Stephen says he came from Haran, he came down to Israel and he dwelt in this very land where you Jews now dwell. He dwelt down here where we are living. No doubt about the land. And he said he gave him none inheritance in it. Not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession. And there is the land, friends. The land of the Middle East. God promised to Abraham he would give it to him for a possession. But he never received so much as to set his foot on Stephen being witnessed. And Stephen died for that testimony of faith. That is what it meant to Stephen. He was put to death for his testimony of faith. That is what it meant to him. It was fundamental to him. He preferred to cling to that testimony of faith on penalty of his life. So you can see how fundamental it is, friends. And Abraham is the real possessor of the land of Canaan. Abraham is the real possessor of the land of Israel. That land belongs not to the Jews, not to the Gentiles, but to Abraham. And the time is coming when Abraham will receive it. When I explained this to my friend, he said to me, how will Abraham receive it? Abraham is dead. How is he to receive that land? I drew his attention to the 23rd chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. I drew his attention to the fundamental doctrine of the Apostles as they went forth preaching the gospel of salvation. And in the 23rd chapter of Acts, we have the record of another man who was brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin. Another man who has to testify for his faith. On this occasion, it is the Apostle Paul. And when Paul was brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin, what was his defense? Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, he said, I am called in question. Not a soul going to heaven at death, but of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. There's a vast difference between that and what is currently taught as the immortality of the soul. Paul didn't believe in it. He told anyone the hope that their soul would go into heaven. In all the passages of Scripture, he directed his hearers to the fact of the resurrection from the dead. And here before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the whole of his defense was in that statement of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And in the 26th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, when he was brought before King Agrippa, when again he had to defend his faith, it was on the same basis. He said in verse 6 of that chapter, I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Now what was that promise? I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. What was the promise? Abraham looked northward, southward, eastward and westward. All the land that thou seest to thee will I give it unto thy seed forever. 
And Paul says, I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. And then in verse 8 he said, Why should it be thought the thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? That was the hope of the Apostle Paul. And that brings us to a very personal question. Because, you see, when we turn back to that third chapter of Galatians, we read these words in verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And if ye be Christ's, if ye be Christ's, If you have espoused the faith in Christ Jesus, if you have been baptized into Christ, if ye are Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And the voice of God sounds out to you as it did to Abraham. Look northward, southward, eastward and westward. All the land that thou seest, to thee will I give it unto thy seed forever. If you are Abraham's, if ye are Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And as we see the Jewish people returning back to that land, as we see the great dramatic events that are taking place today in all the earth, as we see the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, not only in relation to Russia, but in relation to Israel and in relation to other countries, we know, as the Scriptures have told us, that the time is at hand when God will vindicate his promise to Abraham, when Jesus Christ shall return. And in the pages of God's Word we learn that the first work of Christ at his return is to bring from the dust those that have passed into the article of death and to reward those who have lived in accordance with his precepts with life eternal. Abraham will come again from the grave and all those with the faith of Abraham, they will be brought again from the grave. They will be given life eternal and they will be given an inheritance upon this earth forever. And what more do we want, friends? That is what God has promised us and that is what we desire. In spite of all the preaching concerning the immortality of the soul, who wants to go to heaven? Not one of us. None of us desire to die. We would desire to have a position upon this earth forever, particularly if our life was one of happiness and great peace. No one desires to die. No one wants to go to heaven. You know, friends, it reminds me of a story I once heard concerning an evangelist who travelled through the wilds of Canada. And he preached a very fiery doctrine to the people, a fiery doctrine of heaven and of hell. And he called upon his audience on that occasion, every one of you, he said, every one of you that desires to go to heaven, put up your hand. And there was a forest of hands go up towards heaven as they listened to the fiery discourse of the evangelist, except for one fellow in the front row. And he did not put up his hand. And the evangelist looked at him. He said, my friend, didn't you hear my appeal? I will give you another opportunity. All that desire to go to heaven, put up their hands. And again a forest of hands, except for the person in the front row. And he addressed him again. He addressed that friend. He said, don't you want to go to heaven? The friend says, no, sir. And I don't think if you give me permission, 
to preach a sermon from the pulpit, I can convince this audience that they don't want to go to heaven either. The evangelist said, I'm sure you could not do that. The man in the front row said, well, just give me the pulpit for two minutes, he said, and I will preach my sermon. So he was invited to take his place upon the platform and he stood before that audience of cowboys in the wilds of Canada and he took out his guns and he said, now who would like to go to heaven first? Please put up their hand. And there was no hand went to heaven that time. No one desired to go to heaven because, friends, there is no desire for that. But if someone was to set before you the possibility of endless life upon this earth at a time of great happiness and peace, that is what humanity craves for. That is what God offers unto us. And the time is coming when that shall be fulfilled at the return of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to direct your attention in conclusion to one statement contained in that 13th chapter of uh, Genesis. We learn that when this great decision was made by Abraham and Lot, that they were standing at a certain place we read in verse 3 of the 13th chapter of Genesis that they came to the Bethel unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. And these two men stood between Bethel and Ai when Lot made that great decision. They stood in the upper lands of Palestine between Bethel and Ai. On the left was Bethel uh, and on the right was Ai. And Lot looked towards Ai and down into Sodom and Gomorrah. He saw how glorious the prospect looked. And he left to Abraham Bethel. And those two words are very significant because the word Bethel means the house of God. And the word Ai means ruin. And those two men stood between the house of God and ruin. Lot went downhill to ruin to Sodom and Gomorrah. He left to Abraham the house of God in the hills of Palestine. He had to climb up to the house of God. It took some effort and energy to do so. But there was peace and there was the prospect of future happiness when Jesus Christ shall return to establish upon this earth the kingdom of God. And you know, friends, we all stand with Abram and Lot. We all stand between Bethel and Ai, between the house of God and ruin, and the world today is madly running to ruin. But the hope before us is to seize hold of these promises to Abraham that will present us with the prospect of the house of God and life eternal at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ said, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. The days of Noah were days when there was a crisis impending, but people did not heed the message. These are similar days, but Christ will return assuredly as the sun will rise on the morrow. And when he returns, it will be to honour those who have associated with Abraham in the belief of Abraham and in the actions of Abraham in a life that has lived in confident anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ and the setting up upon this earth of his kingdom that the promises made to Abraham might be vindicated.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.